The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Here. Uh, Romans chapter 8, we're going to start there, and then we're going to go to Ephesians 1, and I'm very loud up here. Um, we're going to go to Ephesians 1. So if you want to you know, get over to Ephesians 1, then thumb over to Romans chapter 8, so we can follow along. Um, Romans 8 won't be on the screen. Ephesians 1 will be, I hope. I'm not going to look, though. Romans chapter 8. This is where we're going to kick off our series. And so titled the series, Elements of Redemption. And kind of the theme would be trusting in God's conquering love. So I want to take a look at what is it um, that God has done, is doing, and will do for us that kind of envelops this idea of redemption, salvation, um, what God's accomplished. So we're going to start with Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 28. Our series is going to be pulled from verse 29, uh, 30 rather. 30. I should probably know that by now. It's going to be pulled from verse 30. And so you'll have four sermons, each focusing on one of the words in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. So let's just start by reading in, in verse 28. And we know all things... We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's a very familiar verse, so we're going to put it in context. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's your four sermons for the next month. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any el- anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is kind of the, 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 the groundwork behind these four sermons. Um, we're not going to be preaching out of Romans chapter 8 at all, really. Um, we're going to try to incorporate it in. We want to focus on those four words in verse 30 over the next four weeks. And we want to put that into the context of what's going on in Romans chapter 8. He is giving us a basis for assurance. How can we trust what God has done? How can we be assured of what God has accomplished in our lives? How can we know that we are conquerors, know that we will endure, know that we will succeed, know that we have victory? Let's consider what redemption is. Redemption, as simply as I can put it, is an exchange of Christ's righteousness and freedom for our sin and bondage. So the reality of our sin and bondage, what we've entered into from Adam's sin to the decisions that we make, the things we do against God's word, 
Christ, at his death, exchanged his righteousness for our sin, took our sin on himself, all of it, and put on us his righteousness. That's the exchange. And that's redemption. He redeemed our sin for his righteousness. What is true of him becomes true of us because what was true of us became true of him at the cross. But it's also a little bit more than that. Um, There's a term called the economy of redemption. And that that is just the, the structure in which the Trinity exercises this. So they, God, the persons of the Trinity, made an agreement with each other that they would redeem sinful man, and they work within that agreement. They work within that pact. They take action on that agreement. It was an agreement made in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, to free us from our sin. Short quote here, the work of salvation is an undertaking of three persons in which all cooperate and each performs a special tax. It is the triune God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who together conceive, determine, carry out, and complete the entire work of salvation. So what we want to do is very carefully consider how each of these actions on God's part inform our faith in what he has done. How do they feed our faith in what he has done? How do they give us confidence that he has accomplished something on our behalf? So the order given in verse 30 would be, we're predestined. Simply meaning God has planned our redemption from eternity past. We're called. God has brought redemption to us personally, to each of his children. He brings it to you. Justification, he purchases your redemption, specifically your redemption with his son. And glorification, God will see your redemption through to its intended end. It will be accomplished. So the summation of what Romans 8 is teaching is we have confidence for victory. And it's not born out of the fact that I'm willing and able and awesome. It's not about how much goodness I can conjure up to prove something to God. It's born strictly out of the love of Christ. It's because of this love that he has planned, purchased, and perfected our salvation. So the questions are, who can come against us? God has given us everything in Christ. Who can accuse us? God has justified you in Christ. Who can condemn you? Christ has died for you. He's risen for you. He stands at the right hand of God, specifically pleading your cause by name. Who can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. It's the love that wins. It's victory is sure. When we're faithless, he is absolutely faithful. No matter what we face, and we are going to face horrible things, nothing separates us from him. It's on the basis of what he's done. So we're going to start with predestination. It's the first word in verse 30. We're going to jump right into that. I know um, it's everybody's favorite topic. So uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, 
I want to talk about, we're going to read that, then we're going to kind of just jump right into the sermon. But I do want to talk about, um, very quickly, this is not going to be a defense, okay? Um, I'm not going to stand up here and just kind of completely blast all of you out of the water for how you consider this or bang into your head all of my thoughts concerning this word. What I want to do is really offer up reasons we should praise God for this reality. It's set forth in scripture. It's a biblical word. It's a biblical reality. It's something that God absolutely did according to his word. And we're going to celebrate that. We're going to praise him for it. So we're going to start with um, predestination. I do want to touch on just one thing. And that is oftentimes we can try to excuse this word away with verse 28, when God says, or Paul says, those he foreknew, he predestined. Um, I'm going to just very simply say that same word is used in 1 Peter, that Christ was foreknown and then was manifested or shown to us in the end times. The verse does not say that God looked out and saw what you did or didn't do. He did not stare through the corridors of time and realize how wonderfully fantastic each of you are and then make a decision. What it's saying is he had some sort of relationship or relational love for those whom he predestined, those whom he'd choose. And based on that, he calls us, he justifies us, and he glorifies us. So don't let that word trip you up. Um, it's very clear in scripture, and we won't look at all of the examples that that is often not meant in the way that he just kind of saw and knew what was going to happen. Um, that's obvious. That, that's a, that's a, that's, God is obviously totally knowledgeable. He knows all things. But what's in view here is more of a relational type of foreknowledge. And that's pretty evident through the passage because it, it bears into things like a gift of faith that bring into justification um, again, I don't want to spend a ton of time on that. I did want to kind of just clarify some of that. It, it, it's a knowing of what will come to pass based on the free choice of God. Okay? God knows all things because he decides all things. It's pretty, pretty simply put. That's probably the, the easiest way I can boil that down. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14 is what we're going to focus on. <clears throat> and I'm the one that didn't turn there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to this purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will." so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might to the, be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed, and promised, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, and we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Let's pray. Lord, we know you decide all things. We believe you have brought all things to pass for our good and for your glory. We pray that you teach us through this passage not only the greatness of our salvation, but the great thought and work that you put into it. That these things didn't happen by accident, but these were born in your mind far before you were on ours. And Lord, that because of this, we have a sure and steady anchor of our soul. That Christ has gone into the holy place and he's pled our cause. I pray that you'd speak truth to us. That you'd speak these things into our hearts, Lord. That we wouldn't bristle at them, but God, that we would rejoice in what you have done and what you have accomplished. I pray all these things in your name, amen. So I've entitled the sermon, Predestined to Praise. And just to give you the the big idea right at the outside, it's predestination births joyful praise to God, in God, for his good purpose. Predestination births joyful praise in God for his purpose. And we're going to see that phrase over and over and over again. In fact, there's a couple phrases that Paul gives us over and over and over again. Paul kind of postpones his normal greeting. Um, If you've read any of Paul's letters, it's usually like, I greet you, I'm thankful for you, you guys are awesome. He doesn't kind of jump right into that in this one letter. Instead, he kind of puts the pause on that. And he gives us this 202-word long sentence in the original language. Um, There's no periods. There's really barely a space for a breath. Paul cannot write this fast enough. He's just like anxious to get this out in front of us. And it's a eulogy to praise God for everything that he's done for us. It is literally kind of the Bible boiled down into this small passage of Scripture. What is God doing? What is his purpose for us? What is our end? All of those things are answered in this passage. But it's very well thought out. As much as it seems like, because it's a really long sentence, that Paul is just like kind of writing furiously, it's extremely well structured. He repeats some phrases, the word bless, and other phrases, according to the good pleasure of my will, and to the praise of his glory. Those are all mentioned three times each. Each time he mentions to the praise of his glory, it's repeated as a description of the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that order. So if you read that passage through again, every time he says to the praise of his glory, he is coupling that with a work of the Father, then a work of the Son, and then a work of the Holy Spirit. He then takes and places the reason for our praise directly on a word that we read in Romans chapter 8. And a few times in this passage, predestined. The word represents a truth that is taught throughout Scripture. It's used, it's taught through a few different words, so we, we know the word predestined, chosen, elected, The word known often teaches the same thing, among others. I want to give you a definition again before we kind of just really dive in. It's the free choice of God in electing a people for himself to the praise of his glory and grace. It's the free choice of God in electing a people for himself to the praise of his glory and grace. And our question today is what application does that carry for us? 
I think that the thing that's been most encouraging to me over the last month or so while I've been thinking through this and reading through this and, and, and writing this, is that our salvation does not rest on our faulty desires, our faulty decisions, or our faulty feelings. It rests on the will and choice of God before the foundation of the world. And in turn, it makes nothing meaningless. Nothing is meaningless. And that should echo in our hearts this morning. It should echo in this room this morning. There are lots of people in here who've been through very difficult things over the past couple of years, over the past couple of months. And this doctrine, this teaching, this passage means it is not meaningless. It happened for a reason. <coughs> that reason is expounded over and over and over again in this passage when he says, to the praise of his glory and grace, everything that happens to us happens for God's glory, to the praise of the grace that he shows to us, And because he is gracious, it ultimately happens for our good, even when it flies, even when the things that occur fly directly in the face of what seems good to us. I'm going to give you one quote on the doctrine this morning. We really just want to focus on the passage, so I'm not going to bring all these old dead guys into the passage this morning. But one quote Spurgeon says, I love the doctrine of election or predestination because I am quite sure had God not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. That's my testimony. Absolutely true. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, else he never would have chosen me afterwards. Also very true in my testimony. So sermon's not going to be a defense of this truth, like I said. If it were, I would have jumped right into the Romans chapter 9 after reading Romans chapter 8. And we've probably been there for three hours. As it's a celebration of praise for all that God has accomplished for us through his, as it is a celebration of praise for all that God has accomplished for us through his predestination of us. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We want to celebrate what God has done. So number one, we're going to praise God for blessing us in Christ. We're going to praise God for blessing us in Christ. Predestination births joyful praise to God or in God for his good purpose. We have to consider what predestination has accomplished in this passage. We're to bless God as he blessed us in Christ with all spiritual blessings. Paul is using that, and you'll see it in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. It's kind of a, a, a play on words there. The word blessed is the same each time, but kind of means something slightly different. Essentially, he's saying, praise God as he has benefited us, as he has benefited us in Christ with all spiritual benefits. We are going to give God praise for the benefits that he has given us. And where do those benefits exist? They exist in one place, in one place alone. It's repeated over and over and over again in this passage. They exist in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in 
the heavenly place, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We're going to spend the, the remainder of the sermon after this point, really fleshing out what those blessings are. But we don't need to understand the weight with which God delivers these blessings to us. All right, so we're blessed in Christ. A variation of in Christ appears 11 times in this passage. These 14 verses, in Christ appears 11 times. It's because of our position in Christ that God blesses us. We should not expect blessing to come from the outside of that or from beyond that reality. These things are true of us. These blessings that we're going to discuss, they're true of us because they're true of and in him. And that's where we're predestined to be. We're predestined in Christ. So he's blessed us in Christ, and he's done it with every spiritual blessing. Everything we've received in God's saving act is in view here. Is referring to all blessings belonging to the spirit. The adjective spiritual um, is not to differentiate between really spiritual and physical, uh, nor is it referring to only um, the things mentioned in like 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul gives those lists and administration, and then it boils into tongues and all those different things. Those not, not necessarily what Paul's talking about here. Why? Because those are gifts that one of us may or may not have. When you read through 1 Corinthians 12, you go through that list and you say, okay, I, I can see having that one, but I probably don't have these other 11 or however many there are, I have no idea. I didn't count. I probably should know that. Every single one of the gifts that we're talking about today, as a child of God, we have all of them. They are all true of us, and they're all true of us at all times, no matter what. If you're a believer, every gift we talk about, every blessing we talk about, is going to be true of us, and it's going to be true of us at all times. And they're not just future promises in that reality. They're present realities. They're true right now. I know I haven't told you what they are yet, so we're building into that. So it's a little bit like, okay, what are they? The reality is that there's some weight to what God has accomplished here. There's some power to what he's done. This isn't just a theological exercise. This is absolutely applicable to us because these things are true about us at all times. And keeping Romans chapter 8 in mind, where we're coming from this, if we're really conquerors, how is that so? It's because God has blessed us from eternity past with things that are absolutely true about us in Christ. And where does it say he's placed them? He's placed them in heavenly places. It's a phrase that's native to a book of Ephesians. You don't find it anywhere else. It's repeated four or five times in some way, shape, or form. He's using this phrase to say that these blessings are out of the reach of our enemy, as discussed in chapter 6 of this. The ones that give us so much problem, problems on earth. Principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. Can't touch it. They have no power over these blessings that God's chosen to give us. And he further magnifies verse 3 by saying in verse 4, these blessings that are in Christ, he's magnifying that when he says, 
just as. Look at verse 4 again. Or even as. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It's first introduced, predestination is first introduced in this passage as Paul thinks back before creation, before time again began, to a time where only God existed, and he anchors the blessings of being in Christ to that point. There are blessings that relate to our past, present, and future. He's going to repeat this throughout the passage. He calls it predestination. He calls it God's good pleasure. He calls it God's will. He calls it the mystery. He calls it the purpose. He calls it the counsel. Paul's assuring us over and over and over again that we can praise and bless God for the blessings he's given us because they're rooted in his eternal plan and purpose. They were his idea, and they're certain now, and they're certain for all eternity. So we can praise him for the blessings, and we can praise him for the purpose of these blessings in Christ. Let's read verses 4 through 10. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God made a decision, and the decision brings to us certain blessings and certain realities. And across this passage, as we talk about these gifts, as we talk about these blessings, we have to keep in mind there's a purpose at work, born out of the love of God, that we are to give him praise and glory. That's what's running alongside this. Frankly, it's why it's near and dear to God's heart. That's why we're near and dear to God's heart. first one is being chosen for holiness. The first blessing that we have, the first blessing Paul describes is that we're chosen for holiness. We're chosen to be holy and blameless before him. And I don't want to steal from Peter's sermon. This is basically justification. So he'll dive into this far deeper than I'm going to. The reality of that is we have a legal standing before God that we're forgiven. We exist now and at all times, as his children, before him, with a status of holy and blameless. None of us probably feel that way this morning. It's just the reality of life. But it's a reality. It's true of us. We are holy and blameless in Christ before God right now and for all time. We're going to fight our whole lives for sanctification. We're going to try to follow the command, be holy as I am holy. We have to. Sanctification is a part of salvation. There's no glorification without sanctification. It has to happen. But the promise of God is that it will be worked out based on this decision that he made. 
If you're a believer, if you're in Christ today, you will become more holy, more blameless. Doesn't mean we're never going to mess up. It doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. But the present reality before God right now is that we have all of the holiness and blamelessness of Christ. That's how we look to him. It should propel us to fight harder. Romans 8 said we're more than conquerors. The fact that that's a reality that's always true of us should be our motivation to actually you know, do our part in sanctification, to be holy as God is holy. We have that status before him as one of his predestined, as one of his elect, as one of his chosen people. No matter how you feel this morning, know that in the eye of God, that's how you look. You're precious you're blameless, you're faultless. Paul literally said in Romans chapter 8, who can lay a charge against you? What court could they possibly try you in? He owns them all. They're all his. And we can praise him because of that. They're all his. He gets the last say. It doesn't matter what anyone else says about you. It doesn't matter what's laid against you. As his child, as someone who exists in Christ, you have the present reality of being holy and blameless before God. It'd be nice if we could function that way in the church. Unfortunately, church disciplines reality too. We have to, we have to keep those things in view. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of struggle with sin, when you don't understand why you're doing the things that you're doing, when you, you can't understand why you would even make that decision that you made, God sees you as holy and blameless in Christ. Not only that, we have adoption as God's sons and daughters. We have adoption as God's sons and daughters. <laughs> Chosen for his family. Look at verses five and six. He predestined us, according, uh, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, the praise of his glory. I'm just sorry, to the, or sorry about that. I, I lost my place. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We're chosen for his family. This has been God's MO for all eternity. He chooses his people. And he's chosen us as church. He's chosen every believer. Just as all things were created in him, Colossians 1.16, so all that are gods are chosen in him. Election or predestination is always and only in Christ. Points, <clears throat> points to our defining of foreknowledge earlier. God did not look down and see how wonderfully fabulous we are, or marvelous we are. He chose us for his purpose. He chose us to the praise of his own glory. His people for his purpose. We had nothing to do with it. And that should encourage each of us to the core because it means we can't mess it up. And we would if we could. Quickly, because I have to move, but the thing that's reminded me of more than anything when I was reading it was uh, in, if, if you spend any time in church, you doesn't mean you're going to know this name. <laughs> Mephibosheth. Anyone, anyone know who that is? Okay, great. 
Um, one person, Nick. We'll talk after. Uh, this is Saul's son. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where you kind of get the biggest picture of who he is. Mephibosheth. His name literally means end of shame, which is mind-blowing when you actually read about him. Saul's son um, escaping, when escaping the attack of the enemy on, that would end Saul's life, uh, a nurse picks him up, runs, drops him. He's paralyzed from then on out. That's how the story goes. He ends up in a place called Lodabar, which literally means nothing or no word. Nothingville, middle of nowhere. Zero importance. Years later, David begins to think about his promise to Jonathan and seeks out a child of that promise. His promise to Jonathan was that I will bless your family. I will be good to your family. No matter what happens, I'll treat them like they're mine. And he's, it's Jonathan's long dead. And David's looking for somebody to pour that out on. He finds Mephibosheth, this lame grandchild of Saul's, or Paul, sorry, David's greatest enemy. And he welcomes him into his home, puts him down at his table. And he literally says, you are one of my child, children. Everything that's true of my sons is true of you. Broken, beaten, disgraced. His name rings true. No more shame. Church God wanted us. He desired us. We're an object of his eternal affection. He looks at each of his chosen people. He looks at each of his children and says, I want them in my family. I'd do anything to get them into my family. I'd give my son to bring them into my family. Then we have the gift of redemption and forgiveness. Redemption is a little bit of a hard culture or concept to throw into our culture. We don't have a court system that functions the way they do. We don't have a, a bond servant system that functions the way um, that they did. If you, if you want to kind of get a little bit of an insight into it, Philemon's a good book to read. I'm skipping a few things because we're running out of time. But Paul's letter on behalf of Onesimus, who is an escaped bondservant, literally he sold himself into a form of slavery to a family member. And the idea would be that you work to pay off whatever it is you took that money for. And then once you pay that debt off, you're good to go. Um, he escapes without paying. Paul writes back to Philemon and says, listen, Onesimus, he's become a believer. He's extremely valuable to me. If he's wronged you at all or owed you anything, put it on my account. It's about as basic of a description of redemption as we can get. What Jesus says in the gift, the blessing of redemption and forgiveness is everything you've done against me comes to me, comes on me. It's mine. I'm blessing you in that sense. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and wisdom, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set before, which he set forth in Christ. It's an exchange of Christ's righteousness and freedom for our sin and bondage.
Oftentimes, Paul will use forgiveness of sin singularly to refer to this, um, the, the power that we fight against, a corrupting system. In this instance, he pluralizes it. And in doing so, he specifically applies it to our individual debts of sin. He often does this when he's speaking of justification. What this means is that he did not just set us free from the power of sin. He pulled us out from under the wrath of God. We're guiltless before him. We face no judgment because Christ stands in our place as we are in him. He's in effect saying, I knew what you would do. I wanted you all the same. You're mine. And the last blessing we're going to consider is the blessing of uniting all things in himself. Through predestination, Christ set forth a plan to unite all things in himself. And we've read verse 9 here. Read verse 9 and 10. Touch on it very quickly. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And how many times have we fallen back on that word mystery when considering the word predestination? No, it's a mystery. God says he's shown this mystery to us, and the purpose of this mystery is to unite all things in him. Literally, to fix what we've broken in our sin. Mystery is something that's not knowable. In the New Testament, it's something that's not knowable without the Spirit pouring out understanding. In the Old Testament, it would have been something that wasn't knowable until God spoke it into the heart of a prophet. It's echoing the fact that those who are perishing find the gospel to be foolishness. It speaks to the very purpose for which Christ came to die. God owns it all. Sin fractured it all. Christ redeems it all. Lastly, we can praise, praise him because predestination gives us assurance in Christ. Absolute, undefeatable assurance. Look at verses 11 through 12. Actually, we'll, go all, 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 we'll read all of them for time's sake. In whom we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. to the praise of his glory. Verses 11 and 12 do not include us so much. It, it, it's speaking about the believing Jews. So he's making a differentiation in 11 and 12, 13 and 14. The saved remnant of the original chosen people, Israel. He's tying our salvation back to the same root cause as theirs. Back to the same root cause as theirs. As God has chosen them to be his remnant, as God has chosen them for his inheritance, so he's chosen us. In him, you also, Paul says. 
And he goes back to a we, a plural that's different tense and it includes everybody that he's speaking to. It actually factors in both the saved Jews and the Gentiles. It brings them together. This is, this is going back to the verse we just read where he restores all things, unites all things in himself. They have been chosen by God as his portion. Now we, being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as the guarantee of our our inheritance, have that same reality. What his point is, is that our share of God's inheritance is as certain as those of Jewish birth who first hoped in Christ. Everything that's true of Paul is true of me. Because we're both existing in Christ. Everything that's true about Christ is true of both of us. All of these things that we've talked about, adoption, redemption, unity, holiness, they're all true of me. They're all true of us. We've been grafted in. And we now share that same nourishing root, the olive tree wrenching in Romans chapter 11. We've been pulled into that. And predestination gives us this assurance We are chosen. We are his chosen people, just as believing Israelite brothers were. We're spiritual Israel. All that is true of them is true of us. Lastly, it gives us this hope of glory. It's an assurance of everything that God has promised us. Predestination makes it so. God spoke it. It will come to pass. It will come to pass. Paul continues, and I didn't include this in the text. I do not, in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the Lord God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might. For he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above, any, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How does predestination birth joyful praise in God for his good purpose? It unites us in Christ. It brings us in. It draws us in. Everything that is true of him is true of us in the sight of God. We are holy and blameless. We're adopted as children. We're redeemed and forgiven. And we're unified to Christ. We are part of his fixing all things, redeeming all things, bringing all things in, reversing the effects of sin. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, we do thank you for these truths. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the reality that we have life in Christ, that we exist in him. Lord, that the promises that you gave us are as eternal as he is. 
These things didn't happen by accident. They were born out of the mind and plan and determinate will of God. Would help us to pursue holiness in light of this. Help us to pursue praise of you. Help us to give you glory for all that you've done for us. Pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.